in kind of suspiciously slick suits. And, um, you know, and they were clearly kind of the president's guys. And I was a bit suspicious of them because they had walkie-talkies and I wasn't sure what they were doing and they were kind of tra- checking out what I was doing. And so I was kind of surprised um, at one point to turn around and see Ishmael sort of slapping them on the back and kind of joking with them. And I sort of said, Ishmael, you know, what's going on? He said, well, these guys used to work for me um, on the paper, but, you know, they were great writers and now they've kind of been poached and they're on sort of Alpha's comms team. And so, you know... Um, brain drain is an issue um, and it's not just the comms teams of governments it's businesses and it's also PR you know one of the one of um, my friends I rang in Ghana said that three of her colleagues have gone over to the dark side in the last month you know because it kind of constitutes a huge pay increase I mean and obviously the question of pay is kind of linked to the broader question of how you make a paper viable um, and that's linked to who owns the news which is a really huge issue I mean there are obviously different ways of doing it. Um, in Nigeria, I think most media houses see content um, as advertorial. It's quite straightforward. You know, if you want NTV to cover your event in the evening, three-minute slot, £2,000. And, you know, it's quite, you know, open. I mean, similar prices for photos, standard practice if you want your press release to go in as an article verbatim. You know, and what's the alternative? I mean, Next newspaper, which was set up by um, Dele Olodede, you know, a great Nigerian journalist who won a Pulitzer Prize. He set up this really serious outlet with a kind of investigative angle. Um, you know, they didn't take advertorials. They had to shut down in 2011 because the paper wasn't viable. So it's not quite clear what the right sort of business model is for media nowadays, but that's not, you know, only an African issue, as I'm sure many of you know. And there are also problems um, with state-owned media, media, obviously. I mean, there was a, the issue quite recently with SABC in, um, in South Africa refusing to screen a DA ad in the run-up to the election, allegedly on the basis of direct ANC intervention. So, you know, how do you keep an outlet running whilst ensuring it doesn't become a mouthpiece for either, either the kind of public or private interest is a, you know, a big question. I think this is something Catherine's also been working on. Um, anyway, to bring us back to the challenges that kind of individual journalists face, um, I think you know, the next issue is training. And you know, everyone says this, um, you know, it's a real challenge, lack of training, capacity building and so forth. And you know, I think there's a need to be specific. You know, what kind of training? What do we mean by training? And I think the point here is that if you're a serious journalist, you know, doing any kind of investigative work, um, you know, not just reprinting press releases, not just taking cash to, you know, run someone's profile, then a lot of African countries, uh, diverse as they are, present a very tough working environment. And that's really for two reasons. Um, The first is information retention, and that's governments and businesses being really reluctant to publish information, sometimes being very reluctant to talk to journalists in the private sector, not inviting journalists to AGMs. And, you know, this can go backwards. It's not just a kind of development question. You know, in South Africa with this um, secrecy bill, it would become illegal for journalists to have certain kinds of government info, you know, normally the kinds that kind of expose corruption. I spoke to a friend of mine at the Mail and Guardian, which is a newspaper renowned for having, you know, Expose, exposing government kind of activities and she said the whole investigative team at the moment is on edge expecting that the authorities will come in and seize everything at any moment once this bill is signed into law and you know she may be exaggerating but anecdotally it's kind of in, in instructive and I think others will talk about press laws later um, but that is a real uh, sort of serious issue. The second reason why it's a tough um, working in- environment I think is just because of the sheer number of interest groups in this sort of PR coverage war that deliberately target journalists, um, you know, sometimes explicitly seeking to um, pay them in order to get their sort of their platform in the media. And that is, you know, a big issue. And so in that, that context, in terms of training, to go back to my earlier point, I think there are kind of two things. I think there's kind of journalism ethics that is, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the um, people that I spoke to who are editors have said, well, they felt that that would really equip their reporters to be able to handle what is sometimes a kind of onslaught in terms of different lobbies. And the second thing, and I think this is really key, is specialised training um, to be able to kind of cover technical areas with confidence, you know, be it finance or extractives or law or whatever, you know, in a sense to be able to kind of cut through the bump because, I mean, to give, I mean, to give another Ghanaian example, over the last couple of years there's been a really high profile set of renegotiations going on between the Ghanaian government and various sort of multinational extractive firms. I'm sure many people are aware of it, it was back in the news today. Um, 
But really, the finer details of what has been a very controversial set of deals have hinged on incredibly technical points of kind of tax structure, geological viability, um, railway design. And it's just sort of impossible for journalists covering those stories to um, hold both sides to account, kind of business and government, if they're not in a position to listen to the kind of technical jargon and know if what these people are saying makes sense and if they're kind of telling the truth. Um, and on, on that point of kind of international <laughs> investors, this kind of brings me to my sort of final points, um, which is to do with kind of international perceptions and investment. And I think that a lot of African governments feel under real pressure to present a kind of investor-friendly um, image to the outside world, to kind of <coughs> woo donors and investors and attract FDI. And obviously, in some ways, you know, th there are reasons for that. But it's also a problem because, you know, investors and donors don't always respond well to stories about corruption. You know, it does depend on the investor, uh, arguably on the donor as well, um, and about sorts of stories in, of corruption and inefficiency. And I think this kind of encourages journalists to be even more careful about what they say to journalists. Sorry, governments to be even more careful about what they say to journalists. Or it encourages them to talk to the foreign press and not to the local press. And that is, you know, another big issue. Um, and um, then in this kind of international media space, the other thing to say is that there remains a real skew in terms of the type of story that foreign or international media want to run about Africa. And I think this has improved a lot over the last 10 years, um, but it does remain true in some sense that kind of conflict sells better than democracy. And sometimes it's just sort of frankly irresponsible. I mean, last year I was in Conakry, um, another Ghanaian example, and there was a really long build-up to these very long overdue legislative elections. And there were pockets of unrest, and there were sort of a number of protests that turned violent, you know, sort of 50 people died over the course of three months. It was a really tense time but one afternoon I saw a group of kids having a fight in a road and it kind of lasted 10 minutes and they went back to pay, playing their football uh, their football game and it was reported the next day on a kind of reputable international newswire service not Reuters but you know um, so it was reported as and I quote ethnic conflict erupts in Guinea close quote you know, with photos and you know this article was reprinted all over the local media and kind of caused this real sense of alarm and I kind of called up the stringer who was a guy I knew and I sort of who was a Ghanaian journalist and I said you know what's going on and he said well you know that was the story my editor wanted so it seems to me that when we think about sort of media and democracy and conflict, we really need to think about who is setting the news agenda in Africa and outside. And I'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, that's very good. Winston. Thank you. Over to you. <coughs> thank you very much. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Nick, uh, Dr. Nick Chisman and uh, Professor Levy. Um, and uh, all at the Africa Studies Center for inviting me to this round table to talk about media conflict and democracy. Um, I am the editor of uh, a journal that focuses on you know, uh, <coughs> media studies in Africa. Um, and uh, I want to reflect uh, on this topic by touching on different contexts. Um, I'll try to avoid some of the issues that my colleague uh, raised uh, here. Um, but I want to say that this is very important because uh, Africa Day was recently, and uh, as you know, uh, we are celebrating 51 years after the formation of the African Unity. Um, the Af 51 mm -hmm. years, yeah, after the formation of the OAU uh, on the 25th of May 1963. Um, this is very significant because um, uh, one would think that the winds of change that the UK Prime Minister Harold Macmillan talked about have already resulted in a lot of change. It is my argument that uh, uh, depending on where you are uh, standing, uh, this change has not really happened for many people. <coughs> in Africa, we tend to have um, a, a lot of uh, continuing problems. Um, and part of this uh, is uh, resulting from the kind of colonial uh, infrastructure, politically, economically, However, and this affects also the media side. Um, so the historical lines, they still define much of what is happening in Africa. And uh, today's globalization via institutions such as the World Bank, IMF, WTO, uh, are perpetuating this uh, dependence, this perspective of Africa as a, you know, as, as a place where 
we have capitalism without a human face. It's a ruthless place where uh, if you are not uh, uh, careful, you realize that uh, um, it's, a, it's a place where there's, there's no pity, you know. It's difficult to survive. So Africa inherited national economies that are still subject to fluctuations uh, of a global uh, economy uh, over which a lot of the governments there are uh, a very little influence. The World Bank estimates that as much as 70% of the net wealth in sub-Saharan Africa is owned by non-indigenous Africans of or foreigners. That's significant. And it also estimates that a staggering 65% of sub-Saharan Africa's best arable land is still controlled by uh, white settlers or multinational corporations. This is significant. I thought it's important to map out the environment uh, in which uh, we are talking about uh, uh, media conflict and democracy. Um, I would like to also mention that uh, the attempts by incoming African governments to do something about these uh, inequalities have not gone far enough. So what we have therefore uh, is what people call the unfinished independence. There are a lot of you know, uh, causes that are still going on. So when we are looking at conflict on the continent, we need to think about this. Um, why I bother to say this is that the media, they do not like context. The media do not report within a context. They like uh, to report on events. They like to report on what has happened. And this is a major, major problem. Um, those of you who know the uh, McBride report that came out in 1980, it was a very brave UNESCO initiative. Of course, that resulted in the UK and uh, the USA leaving UNESCO. It recognizes these uh, uh, imbalances um, and it called for uh, media practices and media uh, ownership that is true to uh, sovereign national sovereignty. Um, but uh, a lot of the findings of this report, which are still relevant today, have since been ignored. Um, and if you add that to the precarious nature of the African democratic uh, projects that we have, uh, whether you view that via the lens of the elections that we have had in uh, South Africa, Malawi, and other <laughs> countries, and, or in Egypt that has happened, these are just events that are not really uh, connecting with the majority of people. But my point is that uh, when you look at what is happening in Africa, um, you need to uh, uh, locate it within these environments where there is a lot of injustices, unfairness, inequalities. And my uh, take on uh, the reportage of uh, conflicts is that they don't necessarily uh, gen they don't necessarily allow journalists to uh, investigate and come to a, 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 a an understanding about uh, the context in which things are happening. Uh, if you are optimistic, you would say that well, Africa is doing very well. Economic growth is averaging about five percent every year, and this is a uh, positive. Yeah, but however, economic growth is nothing. You know, it's not <coughs> development. A lot of people are, uh, are actually uh, wallow wallowing in poverty. Um, there is no development for uh, many people that are uh, in, in the countryside, for example. Um, so when it comes to the media, the ownership structures, particularly of uh, state-owned media, have not really allowed media to go to work outside the elite groups, which I will argue are working in cahoots with uh, or in connection with uh, global capital. The local elites in Africa, most of the leaders that we have, are leaders that are actually not really looking after the interests of uh, local people. Uh, you look at countries that are reputed to be largest oil producers in Africa, then you look at the lifestyle that people are leading. Uh, this is a real tragedy. So the media are unable to play their uh, watchdog role that we have come to associate with liberal democracy here in the West because they are ill-equipped. The training, as my colleague said, is, uh, doesn't go uh, far enough to allow them to do investigative journalism. They do event-driven journalism. So they miss out on the massive corruption that you find in uh, countries like Nigeria, even South Africa, which is supposed to be uh, the model democracy in Africa. We have had reports of worrying levels of corruption, but how 
much are the media there uh, equipped to deal with corruption. We find that they tiptoe around the issues of corruption. The result is that uh, there is a lot of anger, a lot of groups that are marginalized, that are left out of these mediated you know, uh, public spheres. <coughs> they are not participating in the uh, uh, news uh, public spheres. So you have um, uh, conflict in the informal world that are not covered. Um, we have conflicts that are happening. Sometimes to the media, there are mindless conflicts. Uh, you talk about the Boko Haram that is happening in Nigeria. For many people, this does not make sense. But if you ask <coughs> Nigerians, there is a lot of uh, neglect of that region. Uh, it does not compare with what else is happening in, uh, in other parts of Nigeria. And this results in uh, a lot of conflict that is uh, uh, unnecessary. I'm not saying that uh, you need to abduct girls in order to <laughs> get uh, um <laughs> to get your uh, your your, uh, um, your area uh, served by the government but what i'm saying is that the issue of context is something that is uh, not there the my colleague mentioned the issue of interests uh, there are a lot of interests that are there because uh with liberal democracy the media are supposed to be neutral they are supposed to be objective observers this stance is is, is not right yeah the media are supposed to take a side. They are not supposed to be objective. Yeah? So the training that we give to our journalists says that uh, they should approach the media and uh, they should be you know, into balanced and fair uh, reporting. But what is happening in Africa because of ownership trends is that the media, they are taking sides of those who own the, uh, the outlets. And uh, various groups who are competing for recognition and representation are able to monopolize these spaces. And I think this is not right. Uh, when you also look at uh, what has happened in uh, other parts of uh, Africa, uh, Rwanda, for example, it was a tragedy that the media was used in such a way, a way radio played a uh, prominent role. But uh, the media also a means by which uh, the public can be uh, educated, public opinion can be changed, public pressure can be, you know, uh, can, can be um, managed in such a way that it can deal with pertinent issues, whether it's corruption, 50 billion goals missing in uh, Nigeria. Nobody's, you know, uh, bothered about that. We have uh, quite a lot of instances. And my point here is that uh, the media have um, uh, taken the side of uh, the neo-colonial elites in Africa, and they are not performing the role that they, they are supposed to perform. As a result, we have uh, uh, a lot of people who are left out of uh, the uh, uh, public discourses that are, uh, are taking place at the moment. Um, and even the majority of people, they lack knowledge about their rights because the media do not educate them about their rights. So in some cases, you find groups that are living outside you know, the, the mainstream uh, uh, public spheres. Um, so my uh, last point, I, 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 do I still have time? Yes, you do. I Sorry. do have time, okay. Um, so the media, they have a, a role to uh, educate uh, people so that they know the kind of protection of fundamental rights they, they should expect from their governments. I mean, the disappearance, for example, of girls in uh, Nigeria, it is the role of the Nigerian governments to look after the uh, population, the citizens. They are not supposed to look after the, the, the interests of those who are extracting resources in their country only. They're supposed to look after everybody in the country. So it is my uh, contention that the media in Africa are not doing enough to expose uh, perpetrators of human rights, uh, whether these are you know, uh, national governments that are in cahoots with uh, extractors of capital. Uh, the national government, they think it is their job just to uh, protect those who are uh, extracting capital. Uh, that's not fair. Uh, you look at uh, contexts like uh, Sudan, Central African Republic, you think, oh, Africans have a patient just to fight, you know. It's not true, you know. Who is giving those people guns? Who is giving, you know, arms to those groups? We have a lot of interests that are actually buying uh, guns. We have uh, networks that are operating and the media are silent whether the media from here, the global media, I think they have a right 
to expose people that are behind these uh, wars that we find in the Congo, for example, where five million people have died since 2009. Um, um, they are, there is a lot of silence that uh, is unforgivable. Um, and uh, when you look at uh, contexts like Zimbabwe, um, the media there, when they came to report, Zimbabwe is where I come from, um, you find that uh, the interest was, uh, about was with uh, white Zimbabweans who were being attacked on farms. Fair enough, you know, any abuse should be uh, covered. But the media tend to be selective. The framing, the kind of approaches that the media have to conflicts are sometimes driven by uh, interests, interests of uh, countries here, interests that are historical, and this is not supposed to be happening. Um, but of course, now we have also uh, in South Africa quite a lot of uh, similar occurrences to what was happening in Zimbabwe. This is the reason why young politicians like uh, Julius Malema, uh, within eight months, yes, formed a party and uh, managed to get 25 seats in the South African parliament. The levels of anger are such that uh, a lot of people are not identifying with central politics, uh, centralized politics. Uh, they are voting yes, but there are those who are just silent, uh, resisting whatever is going on, disengaging. And these are the people who are now behind some of the xenophobic uh, attacks that we have seen, which seems senseless. Um, I'm not saying it's justified, but uh, I'm trying to say understanding the context uh, of what is happening is very important. Um, Mamdani, uh, Mahmoud Mamdani, the famous uh, uh, Ugandan scholar, he has said that what we have in Africa uh, since colonialism <coughs> is where we tend to uh, to, to go with uh, victor's justice where the winner is supposed to be to exact revenge on those that they, you know, they've taken over, you know. Um, and he proposes that perhaps we should think of survivor's justice based on the South African transition where there's proper reconciliation and the media have a role to uh, address and educate people so that you can also have, you know, uh, a coexistence after major conflicts. Um, the kind of commemorations that are occurring in Rwanda could be some kind of model where we are not only thinking of what the media can do to prevent uh, conflicts, but also to manage and encourage peace journalism. Uh, and this requires, of course, different kinds of training and uh, uh, an awareness of the uh, context uh, in which these things are occurring. I will stop here. Um, and um, I will you. add some things later. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Um, there'll be lots to discuss there when we move on to discussion. So thank you very much, Winston. Um, Catherine, um, uh. I don't know whether you're, I don't know whether, uh, I'm sure Winston didn't have you in mind when he launched this litany of accusations against no. media, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know he has. No, it's okay. I know everybody has a beef with the media. I don't think it's only Winston. I think everybody has a question about why media is not doing what. Yes. I just think, um, I'll talk about media and what it takes sometimes to do what it is that we try to do because he, according to him we haven't done anything but which uh, I'll talk about Kenya because that's what I know but I can I can I can hear from Alex and also from Winston some of the complaints but those are the problems I have to deal with every single day I have had to deal with them all my life since I've started in this business which since I haven't got an answer, I don't know whether we'll get one today, but I hope we do, or at least I'll see some light at the end of this tunnel. I'm basically going to talk about the problems we face in Kenya as a media. I know, for those who don't know, I think we've got one of the best media in the continent, other than South Africa, although I think we're doing better than South Africa. We are slightly, but we also have our own problems. And the problems come from the I'll, I'll, I'll enumerate them. There's the legal system, because we have certain laws that have come into place and other laws that have been there since independence, which basically make our work very difficult. I'm talking about criminal libel, which is still in our statutes in Kenya, which means I might actually, 
if you do something they think is wrong, you might actually be taken up to court for that, as well as the, there's a new, new law that was enacted and signed into law by the president in December, the Kenya Information Communication Act, which is also trying to restrain my area of operation and trying to tell me how I'm supposed to act and I'm supposed to be answerable to other people who, who, who have no business being in my space. As you know, journalists don't like anybody in their space. They will, we tend to try and push that envelope as far as possible. But those are some of the constraints we've been having, including the media council. Those are the legal ones. There is also the one which has been pending forever. I think it's now 10 years. That's the Freedom of Information Act, which keeps on coming every parliament, and then it dies. So it's been in, in hiatus for at least eight years now, but we hope it might manage this time. But then there's also what uh, Winston and Alex mentioned, which is political interests. We have an interesting media system where we have a lot of the newspapers, especially, and radios are owned private by individuals. Obviously, they got this, uh, I, I mean, for the, for the broadcast media, you are located access because of your political friendship. I used to, yeah, friendship. Let me use the word friendship of, of the government or the person who is in power in this situation, the presidency. That is what happened in 1990s when everybody who was affiliated to, was friends with the former president, managed to get a station or two, was able to set up their own radio stations or television stations. We have a situation where because of this ownership, who owns what, we, it, it happened that we had, um, we have stations which are mainly ethnic, uh, vernacular radio stations, which are run and owned by politicians. And then we also have uh, radio stations which are in Kiswahili English, which are national and broadcast nationally. And then we also have, uh, of course, we have the, telev uh, the newspapers. We, only ha we, only, we don't have many newspapers. We only have uh, about four major national newspapers. The rest are about 10, um, what do you call them, provincial or weekly newspapers. The major newspapers are owned by private individuals. The biggest media house is Nation Media Group, which has got a radio station, a television station, and, and it, in Kenya as well as Tanzania and Uganda, and is thinking of going to Rwanda. So it will be the biggest in the region trying to compete with NASPAS, but you never know. My own newspaper is partly owned now by the Times Media Group of South Africa. That's a recent development which happened when I was here. By the way, it's called The Star. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the people who own the paper definitely call the tune, but what, we, what, what we've seen or what has happened is before or in the 90s when we are coming out of this single party madness, sorry, the single party situation, which was, <laughs> was uh, I think it, 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 was, it was some form of madness, I think, because we were in, in, in darkness then. But coming up into the 1990s, which Winston and Alex have mentioned, we got this liberalized media situation. And all manner of newspapers did come up. Unfortunately, as we got into the noughts in the 2000s, most of them had died. The reason was simple no advertising. A lot of the media we have in Kenya is dependent on government advertising. If government denies you advertising, you're dead. Because you can sell as many, okay, you might be able to make circulation, but because of the nature of how you sell your newspapers or where you're allowed to broadcast for that matter, it's very difficult to make ends meet. So most of those very liberal, what I would say very critical newspapers at that time died. By the time we were changing Moi to moving to the first Kibaki, the Kibaki one, the people, the newspapers or the media at that time was all together in one way in the sense that they were all for change and they mobilized the people for that. So after we got rid of Moi, or Moi got out, there was another vacuum because now the politics or the, or the, 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 the thing that got us together 
was getting rid of Moy after that. It was a, there was a vacuum. We didn't know where else do we go, what else do we do. So invariably the media changed, and we only have that. That is led to some of the collapse of the newspapers and magazines, but the radios became very many. We are, we have about 300 now plus. Many many of them are vernacular. Then we have a situation where, as journalists or as media people, you have to decide. Sometimes you're constrained in what you can report or not report on the basis of your bottom line. I said advertising. If you say something which the government is not happy with, they are likely to pull out the advertising. That has happened severally in the Star, where we were very critical of the Kibaki government, and we, we lost advertising. Uh, we, we lost one very big ministry, which is the Ministry of Internal Security. You know the police, they have to advertise a lot of things they want to do, to get done. So we lost that particular ministry and we were not able to get it back. Just And the office of the president, just because they were not happy with what we did. And basically, it, it had nothing to do with the government, it had everything to do with his wife. I mean, sorry to say this, we wrote a story about his wife and the first lady and, uh, well, whatever happened, we lost that advertising. The same thing happened when we were very critical of the only, um, there's a monopoly, there's a company that provides electricity, distributes electricity, KPLC, Kenya Power and Lighting Company. Kenya Power and Lighting Company uses their advertising budget and it's humongous. I mean, it can do a lot of stuff. The advertising budget alone is a lot of money because they have to publish every single day the places they are going to ration electricity or switch it, and that is usually a whole page. And a whole page at the rate at which we charge or any newspaper charges, that's good money for good journalists. It's some good money. So you can imagine KPLC decided not to advertise in the Star. No, actually pulled out of the nation and decided to give the money to the Star. When we wrote a critical story because they, 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 there was a problem with one of their, their, they had a problem with their distribution and the whole country went dark. We wrote a critical story saying that and what the fallout. And then they pulled out the advertising. They went to the standard. Standard wrote a critical story. They pulled the advertising, went to Nation. <laughs> but because by law they are supposed to advertise in at least two newspapers, two national circulating newspapers, at least one or the other of us, who is the current favorite, will we'll get it. And that works through with all, gov with all government ministries, depending on who you know in the government. You might be friendly to one minister and the other one is not. C the current regime right now is very unhappy with the star. I don't know why, but anyway. But they are very resistant to placing their ads in the star. But they are going, they're put, and they are not putting ads in the standard. They are putting very few ads in the standard, and they're giving a lot of ads in the nation. Newspaper of record, started in 60, identified with Kenyan's independence struggle, so it is there. We have a situation again, uh, or rather another issue which I find a problem which is different from everywhere else, I think, is this thing we have to think of ourselves. Every, I, I think it's, I, I tend to be schizophrenic, I think. When we are writing our stories, it's not just that five W's on one H. It's straightforward, yeah, for everybody else, but you have to think the impact of what you say and how you write it. I'm thinking here, yeah, oh, who, what, when, where, and which, and how. <laughs> Those ones who don't know. The biggest, the, thi the thing is, sometimes it's not so, it's not so straightforward because we have underlying problems. My Winston talked about the problems media in the continent is facing. In Kenya, we have a problem. You do not report conflict just straightforward and say, Catherine and David fought. Because if I say Catherine, you share with everybody, say Kikuyu. David who? Luo. You have to think. So every time you, I mean, you kind of have to wear your heart in, I don't know, you become schizophrenic or paranoid, if I was to use the word paranoid. Conflict, reporting conflict is not as easy as many people might think. And one of the biggest, and especially after the 2007 elections, those ones who don't know, we had post-election violence, 1,500 people died, 300,000 were displaced. 
The president and his deputy and a journalist are at The Hague facing crimes against humanity charges. Short story. The outcome of that, or before that, the reason why that happened, how we reported the 2007-2008 election, especially for the media, we had a post-mortem after that. We realized we actually we were accused of inflaming the passions of the people because we were too, we, in retrospect, when we look at it, we said maybe we shouldn't, we should have done our job differently, we reported that conflict differently. As it is, that is something we have to face every single day. Recently, we had the swoop on uh, Somalis, Somali, illegal Somali immigrants who are, who are staying in, in the city, especially, and they were put in a camp. The narrative then was that the government was saying, oh, we are doing this because of security, because Nairobi and Mombasa has been hit by bombs. But it's coming out as if it is a Muslim the government is against the Muslims. It's, it's not. It's our against the Somalis community. And they are talking about how they are being discriminated against. In effect, the way the government is actually carrying out that exercise <coughs> should be coming out how things are not being done according to the law. Then we also have the issue of investigations. In the post, uh, after the 1990s, I think the media was, went all out to go after, after corruption. We are still trying to do that. And I think we did succeed, and we have succeeded mm -hmm. in highlighting some of the biggest corruption deals we've ever had. Some of them actually, I mean, it's taken 16, 20 years. We haven't resolved them, and now we have to pay back. But anyway, some of them are like Anglo-Leasing which was outright theft of money, but now we have to pay because we want to get some money somewhere else. The other thing is we, despite all these constraints from government, because they don't like you saying the stuff that they're doing, and when they find out, they kind of find ways. Sometimes they squeeze you, you know what, but they put squeezes on you, either through advertising, or you get phone calls, sometimes very interesting ones, but or, or other ways of intimidating you not to follow through. But the main thing is that we've been able to expose or to write about some of these corrupt deals. Lapset, which is a huge thing, getting central government to give money to local government. That's a big pot for somebody to eat from. There isn't real deal, which is we're going to get 312 billion from China to build a railway from Nairobi to, no, from Mombasa to Nairobi, not to Malaba, but another weird one. There's, those kind of stories do come up. The only problem is that there's no, I mean, the government feels nothing. There's no reaction. The people don't seem to see. I don't know whether it's our failure or the fact that people have become, or Kenyans are becoming immune they only ask how many bees. I think the next thing that will make wake up Kenyans is the fact that we might say a trillion has been stolen because as it is. How many bees as in billion? Yeah, how yeah. many billions has been yeah, stolen okay. because yeah. we, <laughs> we finished the millions with Anglo-Leasing, now we are talking billions. And nobody seems to be paying attention, nobody is waking up to the fact that it is their money. I will go back to this thing about ethnicity because I, it, it, it kind of boils down to one thing, allo uh, uh, resource allocation and who's getting what and why and how and who to place the blame on. We have tried, and I think uh, Winston, I'll, I'll defend myself on this one, I think we've tried our best to, to bring, to report conflict and bring the issues to the level where it is not just kikuyus and luos, but the reason why they are fighting. You have to, we have to put down, it is either a fight over resources or whatever it is that they are fighting over because of what, 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 what happens when these guys fight or who sets them off. It's usually some utterances by some idiot leaders who think, I mean, actually who appeal to the community they come from to get support. So they say the other side is the one which is wrong. So we really have tried to do that and we've actually, I think, we may have overdone it in the last election, but I think we were very, very careful. We were not able, we, we did put out the issues and we, we keep on putting out what the issues are. Okay, I will just end up by saying one thing. 
there's, an, there, there's this thing about training. I think Kenyan journalists are trained the most, but the problem with that training is that it only trains for specifics. The current flavor of the month, invariably it has to be some NGO which is funded by some guys from this end of the world or somewhere, and it's usually very specific, and it doesn't really help. For example, I think uh, in my newsroom, I think all my journalists have attended at least four or five trainings on reporting HIV-AIDS. I am not complaining, but my problem is the whole thing is done in such, I mean, there's no coordination. So even though the opportunities for training is there, it's totally misplaced. The current flavor of the month before the 2013 elections was peace. So we were drowned with peace and everybody was singing peace until we became so peaceful. <laughs> According to some people, we forgot what we were supposed to do. But in defense of the media, I say, no, we did not forget what we were supposed to do. We did what we were supposed to do, understanding the circumstances and the country and the society in which we live in. So again, I think th there's that big issue about what training is required and who is setting that agenda. Why is it being set elsewhere for us to consume, yet it is us who should be able to say, look, we need training investigative journalism. That is where the, that is what I need, not peace. I'm too peaceful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Catherine. So, Nick, are you, you're going to talk now, you're going to use slides, are you or something? Hi, everyone. Okay. Uh, to start with two caveats. The first caveat is that the reason I'm last is that I really am least in the sense that I know uh, less than anyone else on the panel about the media. The second caveat is that I'm really going to talk about newspapers. But the reason I'm going to talk about newspapers is that actually one of the interesting things that no one's really mentioned yet is that newspapers in Africa aren't quite facing the situation newspapers elsewhere in the world, right? So if you live in the West and you think about newspapers and you read newspapers, you know it's like being in a disco. It's very uh, exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if you live in this part of the world, you know a story about newspapers, which is about newspaper decline. It's about dwindling circulation. It's about the dominance of the internet, the fact that you can't get your paywall to actually give you any money, and the closure of newspapers. That's not really the story in large parts of Africa, where rising middle class, increasing levels of literacy, relatively low penetration of the internet haven't created the same circumstances. Instead, they've actually led to rising levels of newspaper circulation, and that's happened in Kenya over the last few years it's leveling off now it's plateauing and some people think it could decline but to give you an example the daily nation in kenya sells somewhere between i think 150 and 200,000 copies on a sunday that's pretty comparable to something like the independent in the uk right? and those figures have been holding up relatively well so there is a really interesting story here which is in some senses more optimistic than the story you get elsewhere which is about the size of newspaper circulations and the fact that in some countries they're going up and if demographic change continues and we start to see increasing levels of literacy, increasing levels of the middle class, there is some reason to think that it will hold up in the midterm as well. I wanted to start by showing you the figures from Freedom House for Freedom in the World. Um, and they do a study of every, of every country in the world and the level of freedom in the press. And they do it by looking at three different things, three different sectors. They look at the quality of the legal legislation, the actual repression of journalists, um, and some uh, another dimension. And what they try and do is generate a kind of analysis of how free all of the media in the world is. And the key is here. So low for Freedom House is more free. So green is the most free. And then purple, dark purple, uh, is the least free. So what you can see is they have little pockets of free media here. North America, Europe, down here. And then they depict Africa as being largely unfree here, with pockets of what they call sort of almost free or partly free in the south and east <coughs> and in the west, not through the center and the north so much. Now, if you just looked at that and you heard the story we heard earlier from my colleagues, you might then think that Africa would be at the very bottom end when it comes to the absolute numbers of media freedom. But it's not. So if we start up here where you see 
Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, Finland, these are the most free medias in the entire world according to Freedom House. This is not to say of course that Freedom House is particularly reliable or the gospel according to, but it's a useful comparative guide I think. If we go right to the bottom, whereas if you were to look at the Human Development Index or the world's most authoritarian states or the failed state index, you would find most of these states would be in Africa. When it comes to the media, most of them actually aren't. So you've got Uzbekistan, North Korea, Turkmenistan, Eritrea makes an appearance, but then you've got a range of other countries in Guinea, Syria, Bahrain, Kazakhstan, Vietnam, China, Azerbaijan, Laos, Gambia, Saudi Arabia, and so on. What's interesting about these figures to me is that it tells us that there's actually not a one-to-one -one relationship between A, levels of overall democracy and levels of freedom of the press, and also B, that the picture in Africa is bad, but not actually comparatively as bad as it is in some other dimensions. And I think the reason for this, or one of the reasons, is about state capacity. It's about the capacity of the state to actually enforce media uh, control. And it's about, related to that, the ways in which the media are actually controlled by the government. What was interesting about Catherine's story, which I think is completely right, is in a sense the subtle ways in which government seeks to control media in Kenya. We're not talking about the assassination of journalists, we're not talking about state-controlled editorial rooms with, you know, Catherine is a state employee who's put there by the government. We're talking about, well, if you publish something that crosses the line too much, we're going to withdraw your advertising. If you do something that goes too much in this direction, you're going to get a phone call. If you keep pushing it and you don't listen to the phone calls, I call your boss. It's a slightly more subtle, just as terrifying, but slightly more subtle mode of controlling information than we see in the countries that are listed at the very bottom um, of this set of graphs right down here. And actually, if you move up and ask questions about where some of the countries that we've been talking about today are, they actually come towards the middle of the spectrum. Kenya is here. Uganda is here. Liberia is here. Cote d'Ivoire, Tanzania. This is roughly the middle of the spectrum in the partly free section, not in the unfree section. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about how I think about these sorts of states and the kind of control we see and the challenges it creates and then the potential opportunities. And to me, there's a kind of trickle-down authoritarianism that works in a lot of Africa. I know particularly Zambia, Tanzania, Malawi, Kenya, when you think and you talk to journalists about how they think about what they do. Because one of the really interesting things, take Kenya, is that Kenya passed a very pernicious media bill. One of the things that the media bill does is it allows the government to, or a government uh, regulate or controlled body to effectively regulate media content and to issue large fines if the media transgresses. Yet the government has not used it a single time. No? So despite passing that legislation, government hasn't used recourse to it. Why? Partly because it doesn't need to. Partly because it's got a set of other strategies it's able to use in order to control the media in ways that are much more subtle, much less high profile, much less likely to go down badly with international donors. What are those strategies? One, Catherine's already covered so I won't, advertising. I mean, one of the things that we know that is being talked about in Kenya at the minute is whether or not the new government is actually trying to take over more papers or to create more papers that be, can be classified as national in order to divert the advertising that Catherine was talking about rotating between the main four to other newspapers who would be effectively government-owned as a way of additionally punishing those newspapers who are seen as being more independent. So that's one. Another one is that we see, I think, quite a high level of self-censorship. And self-censorship goes all the way down. So it starts at one level at the top where editors have to think about what they're writing in lots of dimensions. And Catherine was incredibly eloquent talking about the problem of ethnicity, the problem of the phone calls from the editors. But that problem goes all the way down to the rank and file. And I think one of the things that's important to think about is the actual economy and structure of the media. Most of the journalists who work in a country like Kenya are stringers, they're not on contracts. So you get paid by the number of articles you get published. If you get paid by the number of articles you get published, you've got to think very carefully about what you put in an article. Because if you put something controversial in an article and an editor doesn't take it, you don't get paid. 
So there's a natural predisposition in that kind of economic structure of the press towards being more conservative or being more cautious in the kind of pieces that you write. So I think one of the issues that I find consistently when I talk to journalists and my colleague Abigail Lynch has found when she goes to talk to journalists in places like Rift Valley is that people are self-censoring. They're seeing things, they're thinking they're interesting, but they're not putting them in their reports because they don't want their report to get spiked. So that means on the one hand, you've got a set of editors who are under considerable pressure from above, but you've also got stories almost kind of being spiked off the radar without coming in. And the intersection of those two things, I think, is one of the things that makes it hardest to have the kind of media that Winston perhaps was talking about earlier that would really start holding people to account. I also think we have to give some of these governments credit for being very imaginative. We often think that the new media is going to transform things, the internet is going to be different, the Facebook will be different, all of a sudden new radio stations will make things different. And to some extent all of that's true. I'll talk a little bit later about the way in which proliferation is making it harder for governments to retain this kind of control through this kind of trickle-down authoritarianism. But it's also true that they are playing a very central role in controlling and shaping that narrative, the narrative that comes out of social media. We know, for example, in Kenya, that an awful lot of the people who are most active on Twitter, on Facebook, elsewhere, are employed by political parties or the government for the purposes of trying to put out certain messages. So it's not the case that these sort of arenas that we sometimes like to think of as being completely free, completely new, completely independent, are uncontrolled or have unbiased sources of information. One of the best examples, I think, of this emergence and sort of attempt to control the narrative, Catherine's already talked about, so I won't say too much more, is the peace narrative that emerged in Kenya around the last election, when essentially donors, Kenyan civil society groups, some Kenyan media, um, political parties and others all agreed that the predominant kind of most important issue in the election was peace. Not necessarily having a really good quality election, but getting through the election as a united nation without more violence, without more deaths, without more displacement. In many ways, that was a reasonable thing to decide. Right? As Catherine said, sometimes you've got to make a decision between publishing and be damned and thinking about national uh, unity. But one of the things that it did do is it kind of allowed the government, who, let's remind ourselves, are two leaders who are... Um, currently on being prosecuted for crimes against humanity at The Hague, it allowed those leaders to push a card of peace as a way of delegitimizing opposition protest. Because the narrative was, we must do everything we can to avoid peace, journalists must not report things that are bad because that could lead to violence, the opposition must not protest because that could lead to violence. Oh, hang on a minute, we're the guys who killed lots of people last time round, but just so happens that this time round, the peace narrative really works in our favour, so we're going to get on board with it. So you get a very strong peace narrative pushed by a lot of very good people, but also by one of the main political parties who benefits directly from that narrative, and that narrative being rammed down everybody's throat. It's a very clever kind of strategy. But what's really interesting, of course, as Catherine says, is the way that that worked to demobilize and delegitimate journalists who wanted to write stories that were going to be more radical or more dangerous. Because not only was this this general narrative that people bought into, but journalists were being trained by Western-funded NGOs to not report things that could lead to conflict. And the sorts of things that could lead to conflict are things like electoral irregularities. So we know that some journalists, and again, talking to stringers and people in the field, did not send stories into Nairobi about electoral irregularities because, in their perception, this would be irresponsible journalism as they were taught it in the classes by Western NGOs. So there's a question here about whether or not these narratives that emerge, like the peace narratives, are genuinely independent from government and about a consensus of in civil society or subtly working in the interests. I just want to talk a little bit about Zambia, because we talked a lot about Kenya today, and say something about the challenges that multi-partyism can play face, uh, can pose for the media in Africa. Zambia is a very different context to Kenya, which is why it's quite a useful point of comparison. It's one of the countries in Africa that, at least until fairly recently, had a much more controlled media. One of those places in which you did find state-controlled editorial rooms. Zambia newspapers were so dull 
that most Zambians refused to actually read them for a long period of time. There simply wasn't anything in the newspapers that you didn't know already and you hadn't seen on TV because the TV and the newspapers tended to tell you the same story, which was, what did the president do today? But there was one independent newspaper, which was The Post. The Post started in Lusaka, got a loyal following, and it was the rabble-rousing opposition part paper, the one newspaper that would publish things that were actually going on that people were more interested in. Unsurprisingly, it started to sell better than some of the established state newspapers because it actually told people something different. And when there was an opposition party called the Patriotic Front, which was campaigning against the ruling party, the Movement for Multi-Party Democracy, a great name in 1989, a slightly uh, humorous name by the period in which MMD lost power, the Post newspaper swung behind the Patriotic Front. So the Post and the PF, the Patriotic Front, became a kind of opposition alliance. The Post would go out and lambast government MPs for corruption um, and abuse of power, and then the PF would use those stories as evidence of that in their campaign rallies, a very effective coalition. And when, people, when the PF won power, people initially thought this was a fantastic thing for the independence of the media. This was going to be the thing that would really allow the media in Zambia to open up, because after all, the PF's best friends were the civil society organisations and the newspapers that had campaigned with it in opposition. Of course, that didn't turn out to be the case, because one of the first things that the PF did was to appoint a number of people from the Post newspaper to government boards for the regulation of the media. Similarly, people from Transparency International were appointed to government boards on regulation of corruption. And so slowly but surely, the post which had once been this bastion of the opposition became sucked into the state and the ruling party and became a bastion of um, Michael Sata's government. At which point, all of the newspapers in Zambia were now effectively under a level of state control and the space for discussion and moving outside of um, official state narratives became increasingly slender. After that, there was a second movement in which a paper called the Daily Nation, no relationship to the Kenyan Daily Nation, uh, started again in Lusaka, much like the Post did way back when, uh, when um, there were no ma opposition newspapers. Uh, and that newspaper again started to sell, not particularly well, but a significant number of copies owned by an independent, as Catherine said, often the more interesting newspapers are, until it was faced by a legal challenge by Michael Sata, who did, of course, exactly the thing that he'd always complained about the government doing while he was in opposition and used the courts and libel claims and defamation claims as a way of increasing the legal fees owed by the opposition to a point by, owned by the media to a point where the Daily Nation is probably going to have to fall. And one of the points that's interesting here, of course, and most of you who study Africa will know this, is you don't need to win a libel or a defamation case if you can get the judge to string it out for long enough so the other guys can't pay their lawyers anymore. Right? You can bankrupt someone through the fees long before the court judgment is ever actually comes up. And if you can bring an editor and a set of journalists into seven or eight court cases at the same time, you can effectively stop them doing any effective work. So to end a couple of quick points, what are the sort of, what is the future? What are the forms of resistance that might be to this? What are the ways out of this? Well, I mean, one of the points is that in none of the states that I've talked about or we've really talked about today, maybe a few exceptions we could talk about if we wanted to, are we talking about police states? We're not talking about states in which media is so controlled you can never do anything. As Catherine said, the media in Kenya has published stories about anglo leasing, published stories about corruption, published stories about ethnic violence. Much of this is in the public domain in ways it would never have been under Daniel Altmore. So the media has made great strides. It is much more independent, more interesting, more challenging than it's ever been before in many countries in Africa. So that's one reason for hope. The second, I think, is what we were talking about earlier a little bit, which is proliferation. Although I'm slightly skeptical of how much of a liberation new forms of social media have been so far, there's no doubt that as they spread and as the rise of the middle class and growth of purchasing power in Africa continues, more and more people will be engaging and it will be harder and harder for government to shape the agenda 
on those new social media sites. And that's something to look forward to for the future. It's also true that although the proliferation of private radio and FM radio has had negative consequences, one of the things that Catherine didn't say is that one of the people charged with crimes against corruption at the ICC was a private radio uh, owner of CAS FM in Kenya who was said to be responsible for broadcasting hate speech around the election. It has also made it much, much harder for governments to actually control the, the information agenda. And I think one of the most fascinating things in a way is that the, the things that I see as really liberating local level debate in Africa are not the exciting new technologies of Facebook and, and you know, Twitter, it's community radio. It's people with wind up community radios all the way back to the 60s, right, which is spreading all over Africa, partly funded by donors, partly funded by local communities, and people having phone-in shows where local MPs think the power of the radio station is so big they have to turn up at the phone-in show, at the local radio station, to defend why they haven't built the toilet down the road. I mean, that is a really exciting development and much more powerful, I think, in many ways than some of the new social media developments. And that kind of proliferation of radio, both FM licenses and in terms of community radio, is something, again, I think, to be celebrated. The other thing, and I, I'm going to own up here that I am a columnist in the Daily Nation in Kenya, so I, um, that's, a, that's a conflict of interest point in case I say anything positive about the Daily Nation. But I wonder also whether or not the particular shape of the media in Kenya reflects partly an attempt by editors to say critical things whilst protecting themselves. And Catherine can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, in the Daily Nation, the number of people who've been asked to write columns has increased dramatically over the last 10 years. And I, as much as I'd like to think this is because we were brilliant uh, analysts, I think it's not. I think it's because editors realize that if you get people to write op-eds as individuals, especially if they're out the country, you can't be blamed as an editor in the same way for publishing them as if someone in your newsroom writes it. So if the Daily Nation asked me to write a review of the year in Kenya under President Kenyatta, I can probably be a degree more critical than a Kenyan journalist living and working in Nairobi might be able to be. Now there's a positive and a negative there. The positive is that you're perhaps finding a way of challenging the kind of way in which this subtle process of control through editors undermines press freedom in Africa, you know, particularly in Kenya. The negative is that you're asking white guys to write the stories, right? That's one of the negatives. Um, as someone pointed out in a piece I wrote on 50 years of Kenyan independence, there's a, there's a terrible sadness in some ways that it's a guy sitting in Oxford who's writing this piece for the newspaper. Um, and you're also, of course, undermining editorial control. You're giving more and more of the newspaper, not to things the editor thinks are important, but to private individuals who are academics, analysts, businessmen, who use what they think is important. But on the other hand, I think if you actually read what's going on in the opinion pages, you have feisty pieces in Kenya from everyone from Godwin Marunga to um, Mathoni Wanyeki lambasting the government, being incredibly critical of corruption, raising some of the biggest issues. And in that way, I think the Kenyan media actually still is, despite all of the challenges that we've talked about, incredibly lively, incredibly aggressive. And if you want the information, you can find it. But you just have to look a little bit harder to get it. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. <coughs> Can somebody turn the, the lights back on? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, four um, really interesting presentations and very, very diverse. But I mean, we there are lots of things we didn't cover. But even within what we did cover, it was, it was quite diverse. Um, <coughs> I. I'm going to move on to discussion in a minute, but I just want to to get a sense. Um, I just want to ask sort of Winston something and Catherine something. Winston, one of the things you talked about, I think, in your in your call for journalism to be a bit more um, give more context, uh, be more constructive, possibly. One of your terms you talked about was actually peace journalism. And I was just struck by Catherine was talking about Western donors coming and instructing people in peace journalism. And I just wanted to see whether you both meant the same thing uh, just before we move on to discussion. So what did you mean by peace journalism? Uh, uh, my point was that, uh, thank you for that point. Uh, my, my, my point was that uh, journalism 
is uh, double-edged, yeah? it can also, you know, uh, start conflicts. It can report in a stereotypical way, in ways that can, uh, you know, ignite conflicts if it's not handled well. Um, but also, journalism can also uh, avoid conflicts, can manage conflicts, can be used to, uh, to, to, to bring society back together. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I, I think. We could okay. Okay. That's very clear. Um, talking about the same thing. What were, they, what were they teaching your journalists? Actually, was it that, or was it something else? No, it's true that if peace journalism, the teaching of peace journalism is that yes, avoid conflict. But what it failed to do, and what I think is the biggest criticism we had from the 2013, where we were peaceful. You know, we closed shop. We were peace. Mm. Peace at any cost is how to report the negatives that you know how to be critical, how to write about the things that were going wrong without necessarily you know not not being seen to be inciting because I think what what, what the criticism has been that the media the Kenyan media went to bed or became zombies or whatever, they be, we became supine, as they say, because we did not criticize the fallouts, the problems that were going on with the IABC at the time and the incidents that happened around just before, during, and after the election. But I, I am not saying that we failed in total, but I think there was a gap there. And in all the peace <coughs> trainings that we all went through, by the way, let me tell you, we were trained so well I remember we, the editor's guild was sent for two, we had to sit in for two days, and we had to go through all manner of simulations to try and imagine if this was to happen, what would you do? Or what angle would you take, or how would you handle it? Because it was, it was so important that we don't get to 20 or seven. We don't mm. go there. So I think there was that element that failed. And when we talked to the donors afterwards, because we had a conversation afterwards following all the criticism, we said, and they've also said, yes, actually we did do our job well, but there were certain elements we did not take into consideration which you should have. So yes, peace journalism is important, but what kind of peace journalism, how to report conflict without necessarily inciting it. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay, you've heard a lot of views from up this end of the table. I just want to get a sense of who wants to contribute and ask questions. And um, uh, there's one question here and another one there. Can we start with, can we start down this side? We'll start here, then go there, and then come.